Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. You can make lots of pretty pictures with Lightbrite from Hasbro. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 86, The Ambergris Element, and The Slaver Weapon, from Star Trek, the animated series. Welcome to Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Today on the show, where we pick apart and analyze every episode of Star Trek, the ambergris element and the slaver weapon. Ken, not too much in the way of poetic titles this week, I'm afraid. Ambergris, which we'll get to in a moment, plays a role in our first episode. And the slaver weapon is about a weapon built by the slavers literally yeah so we yeah. got that no no shakespeare to that so i love that you think somebody was tired or uh, both of those writers were tired this week just like what do you want to call it how oh, we could call it we could call it eh, screw it let's call it what it is i'm bored <laughs> right i i've got i've got a i've got lunch yeah mm-hmm. so let's go yeah <laughs> so those are the two episodes for this week the ambergris element and the slaver weapon and uh boy howdy are you in for a fun show today uh but ken before we get into the excitement of these two animated episodes um i'm 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 just i'm ready i'm willing and i'm waiting to get to the trivia well wait no more my friend go ahead and uh, and and get right to that trivia thing that you do all right, Ken, I got two very important elements to talk about today. Yeah. Um, the, the first of which is that today's uh, second show is most notable and very important for the conspicuous absence of Captain James T. Kirk. This is the only episode of filmed Star Trek from the original cast that omits William Shatner as Kirk. If we're not counting the cage, because of course the cage didn't air until much later, blah, blah, blah. But right. the original cast, <laughs> the original cast that we know and love, this is the only time that they made an episode without him. Really? Yeah. Now, I will say, though, uh, I know that Majel mm-hmm. Barrett at the time mm-hmm. uh, doubled up. <laughs> and, and I'm guessing there's 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 more James Dewan than humans should actually be exposed to in one 24 minute period. Oh yes, yes. yeah. So I mean, yeah. there, there's there's a lot from a lot of the original people that you know. It is interesting though. It never occurred to me that what was the one where where Kirk was a ghost. It was originally going to be a ghost story, but he was actually oh, uh, trapped in another plane. Yeah, the Tholian web. Yeah, that yeah. was practically without Kirk. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, it, there was very little Kirk. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I mean, th- there are other stories. There are books. There are uh, you know audio books. There are video games. There are all kinds of things that do not have Kirk or have much less Kirk. When we're talking about the filmed and dare I use the word canon episodes of Star Trek using the original cast, this is the one that kind of stands out for him not being there. And then uh, we have to talk about the most commonly known bit of trivia. 
but I, I have to mention it because a lot of our listeners have commented on this and wanted to know, when are you going to mention this? When are you going to mention this? Well, today is the day I mention it. Um, the director for Star Trek, the animated series, Hal Sutherland, who is one of the three partners who formed Filmation, uh, was colorblind. Hmm. And we've seen hints of this before. We, we had pink tribbles in More Tribbles, More Troubles. We've seen pink Klingon outfits, a little out of step with how we originally knew the Klingons. Um, but I felt like I wanted to save it for this episode because this really is the most egregious use of pink. The Xenti aliens in the slaver weapon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because they are these fearsome cat creatures, maybe a, a distant cousin to Bress. Um no way. These are these are totally the fish cats from uh, the time trap. <laughs> the, the fish cat. There you go. Yeah. yeah. These are yeah, they. they. These are they. You're right. You're absolutely right. Well, it, see, I just made that connection myself. Um, again, not to say that they're not a distant cousin of uh, Morass, but um, they're the the fearsome fish cats, and they have bright pink and purple outfits. They have a pink spaceship. It's just pink everywhere in this episode. Now, to me, this whole thing raises way more questions than it answers. Like, it's very interesting for Star Trek fans to go, oh, hey, you know, the director was colorblind, and that's why you have all these crazy colors. I could forgive it in uh, More Tribbles, More Troubles, because I go, okay, well, these are the new different Tribbles. We need to make them look different from the other Tribbles. So for this one, they're pink. It's Mm -hmm. a Saturday morning cartoon show. Who will know? But here's the thing, Ken. (laughs) When you get to the Kazenti and their bright pink outfits and their bright pink spaceship, I keep thinking I have to take into account the number of animators who worked on Star Trek, which was at least 75, we know. Okay. The number of other shows that had been created at this point by Filmation, which was a lot. So Filmation has a whole history there of working with. Remember, I I said that they had something like 2,000 animators at their peak. The number of executives, you, you not only had the Filmation crew, but you had the Star Trek crew. You had Gene Roddenberry, DC Fontana, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that other Star Trek stories had already been made and aired by this point. So somebody somewhere is watching these episodes. Somebody in an office in, you know, north of the valley was okaying everything that came from the animators. So it just made me think that there were about 75 animators who said, hey, we're going to make these pink and we're going to see if Hal notices. And if he doesn't, the joke's on him. But... Yeah. Well, it's it's just alien. Honestly, it did not even occur to me. I mean, it is a little weird. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. the weird thing to me was the way they walked. Like, isn't he <laughs> walk like, I mean, like, you know, when you hold up a cat and pretend it's walking. I mean, they walk like that. That part to me was weird. The fact that they would be pink, though. I mean, it's only going to be a couple of years after this that we're going to have a whole cartoon dedicated to Grape Ape. Well, well, that's true. That's yeah. true. But, but, you know, but we've also had pink Klingons. We've had a lot of pink spaceships. And, you know, when you start an animated uh, venture like this, you usually do a character sheet and all the common elements that we use throughout the shows. You do a sketch up and then you have um, – you have paint, basically like a paint chip or paint notes that say, okay, this is this color, this is this color. So you always stay consistent through hmm. everyone. So if you pick up a, a Klingon ship or a Klingon outfit and you go, okay, well, this Klingon outfit needs to be bright pink. 
somewhere, somewhere down the road should say, well, on our character sheets, if we can compare it to the original, maybe they should be gray. Yeah, but gray is boring. <laughs> I no, know I mean, it is. Seriously, gray is boring. I mean, think about the, the primary colors that were used to such great effect and, and the great lights that were used to such great effect as color TVs were coming, becoming prevalent in the mid to late 60s on Star Trek, right? Suddenly you're going to go gray? No, no, no. That's for the next generation or, or maybe the generation after that or whatever you call whatever generation follows, um, you know, the original cast. Cartoon number one, the Amber Grace element. Act one. Arriving at the planet Argo, Captain Kirk, along with Spock, McCoy and Lieutenant Clayton, he's some dude in red, are exploring in the Aqua Shuttle. Argo was once full of land, but through seismic shifts, the surface is now almost entirely water. Before you know it, a big, angry red monster emerges from the ocean and starts batting around the aqua shuttle like a toy. Phasers are fired and the creature is stunned. While it's out, the crew go in for a closer look, but of course it wakes up and the chase is on again. McCoy and Clayton are beamed back to the Enterprise in safety, but Kirk and Spock are missing. When a search party finally tracks them down five days later, they look okay, but McCoy makes a shocking discovery. They now have webbed fingers and gills. Act 2. McCoy has Kirk and Spock in a water tank on the Enterprise. They are healthy, but everything has changed. They breathe water just like a fish would. And the episode ends there. For all remaining Star Trek, Kirk and Spock will be in an aquarium. Okay, well, uh, not really. Their physiology has been mutated, and McCoy assumes it was done on purpose, definitely by an intelligent life form. McCoy has no idea what to do, but Kirk and Spock are ready to go back to the planet to explore. There must be a way to find out what happened, and the answer lies somewhere hidden below the surface of Argo. Swimming the depths, Kirk and Spock encounter a race of, well, they're, they're fish people, kind of like a kinder, gentler version of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Except they're not so kind. They just want to be left alone. So naturally, Kirk and Spock try to find their home when they happen upon a magnificent city on the ocean floor. They are soon captured and pulled into a kind of tribunal where they are accused of being spies. Worse than that, they are air breathers and not to be trusted by the Aquans. Domar, their leader, paints them as enemies, and their ancient texts warned of a day when the air breathers would come. A few of the younger people on the tribunal actually seem to have different feelings. After all, Kirk and Spock were unarmed, and what's the point of following what the ancient texts say all the time anyway? Well, what's the use in debating? The rest of the landing party have been spotted, and Domar decides that the best way to handle the intruders is to have them netted on dry land where they will suffocate. Taking pity on them, and probably out of curiosity, one of the Aquan females, Rila, leads the landing crew to help find their friends. Everyone is freed, and now Scotty is in the drink, using one of those awesome force field belts, to relay a message he got from the Enterprise. Another seismic event is on the way, and it could seriously do some damage to this planet. Again. Rila takes her new friends to the reef barrier, where they will penetrate their ancient ruins and find the texts about mutation. Generations ago, her people were air breathers, but some were mutated when the planet started changing. After that, the mutations were passed on from generation to generation. Maybe this will be a help to them if they were to become air breathers again. In short order, they find the ruins and find a room filled with medical paraphernalia. Spock assumes this was all on the surface before the... Oh, great. 
Here's that big, angry red monster again. Act 3. Just when our heroes are about to become fish food, a well-timed tremor breaks free some of the ancient buildings and traps the nasty, man-eating creature. In McCoy's medical lab, he's having a look at those old medical records. He figures out that the element that made them mutate in the first place is kind of like the ambergris found in Earth whales. The antidote is going to be found in the venom of, oh no, yeah, you guessed it, the Sir Snake, our old friend Big Red with the insatiable appetite. Kirk and Spock ask the Aquans, well, the cool ones anyway, for help. They see it like this. They need the help anyway to get back to breathing air. For the Aquans, just look at all the scientific knowledge you'll be rediscovering from your ancestors. Time to break some rules from the ancient text and go rustle up a monster. They do, and the venom is captured. McCoy isn't too sure how much of the toxin to use, but when has that ever stopped him from injecting his friends? Kirk goes through a few dramatic changes. He's pale, he's flush, he's scaly, he's smooth. He passes out, but it looks like it's working. We're back to old air-breathing Captain Kirk again. As a thank you to the Aquans, Kirk orders the Enterprise to fire phasers onto Argo, which will shift the epicenter of the upcoming quake, thus saving the Aquan city. Domar and Rila are guests on board the Enterprise for this, both wearing protective gear so they can breathe water. And Domar is a little taken aback with the cool technology of the starship. But I mean, who wouldn't be? He might just like this whole applied knowledge and science thing after all. One upshot of shifting the earthquake, that lost city is shifted back up above water. Domar is so overwhelmed that he offers the knowledge of Argo open to the Federation. He also says that the young Aquans have decided to undergo the mutation back to air breathing in order to rebuild their ancient civilization. The old ones will stay underwater. Kirk says, yeah, that's cool. Just don't forget about each other. Domar says, no, they won't. They'll make laws for that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, I know. We'll get know. to it. We'll get to we'll, that we'll part. Get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Uh, interesting that you say sort of like a kinder, gentler um, uh, creatures from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Planet of the Sea Monkeys. That's what I was thinking the whole time. Planet of the Sea Monkeys. <laughs> they do. They, that would be a great advertising tie in. I hope that when this aired in 1973, they had a TV ad for Sea Monkeys. That would be cool. Yeah. Maybe we'll find out later. Or, or if you were a kid, you picked up your uh, uh, your gold key comics for yep. Star Trek that your came co- out around the time, or your copy of Richie Rich. Or <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. I remember those. Please, I I had Sea Monkeys in like nineteen seventy four, seventy five, and I was so excited because I was looking forward to the little cities they were going to build. Yeah, they didn't nuts do that, to that crud. Yeah, I know. No, tiny, tiny little black specks that died. Krill. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't it krill? Is that what it is? Yeah, what? Yeah, they yeah. were they were brine shrimp. Yeah, yeah. brine shrimp. Yeah. yeah, good times. Yeah. So Ken, this episode was written by Margaret Arman, who we mentioned before in the Lorelei Signal, because she wrote that, and of course her many contributions to the original series. Ken, you nailed it. Uh, we have James Doohan here, in fact, doing seven voices Boom. in this episode. Payday. <laughs> Big payday for for James doing that week. Majel did uh, the voice of Rila. Yeah, so and other um, voices. That's the thing. I mean, it got a little confusing after mm-hmm. a while because she was doing even less changes than um, than uh, Nichelle Nichols did last Nichelle. week. Right. Uh, so I mean, just it was like just tiny little modulations, and then the drawings weren't that different. And you got the impression that I mean, she was basically every female Aquan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. You, you may have asked yourself at the beginning of this episode, what is ambergris? Um, I didn't. 
You didn't well. I know. I, I know so. it has to do with whaling. That's all you remember. It does. It yeah. does. Uh, yeah. Not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, it, it is in fact whale poop. Oh. Um, well, <laughs> to, to to be a little more specific, uh, whales will secrete this waxy, hard substance from their intestinal tract, mm-hmm. and if they eat something that cannot be digested easily, this the ambergris sort of surrounds that. And then they either cough it up or expel it from the other end. Okay. So you will find these chunks of ambergris um, containing, you know, various uh, formerly sea life that a whale could not digest. And the ambergris was used, but it, its waxy stuff was used as like a stabilizer in cosmetics very often. Hmm. So uh, yeah, so it, it's still a thing. It's still around. It's rare. Um, but that is what ambergris really is. And the other thing that kind of caught my eye in this episode is the use of the caduceus. Mm-hmm. Here we are on a planet far, far away, underwater, ancient civilization. And Spock knows that they're in the uh, sort of the medical records of this ancient city because they have like an aquan version of or an Ar- Argo version of the caduceus. Mm-hmm. The caduceus was a Greek symbol used by uh, Hermes. Is a winged staff with two intertwined serpents. And as I found in my research, it has nothing to do with medicine. It never was a medical symbol until the United States of America, late 19th century. Is really? When that got adopted. Yeah. Yeah. It was never intended for that. Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea because my dad is a doctor and I, I remember seeing the caduceus on everything, on medical journals and, uh, it, you know, there's all kinds of, there it is. And I, Always made the association that is erroneous, although it has been used ever since. Well, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I guess I guess our two societies, it's sort of like the Mary thing, you know, <laughs> like a whole other earth, right? Right, uh, right. Maybe our two societies, maybe they had like a U.S. in the 1900s on, uh, on this planet. Right. You know, right. before the cataclysm. Yeah, can can I ask go. a question again about the cataclysm? Forgive me. Yeah, and I ahead. know, you know, it, we, we, it's called Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. almost every episode takes place, you know, with, with a spaceship. Right. <laughs> right. Nice. Even yeah. if we don't always see the spaceship, they got there by spaceship. We know all this, right? Mm-hmm. Once again, uh, there's a planet facing disaster. And so the Enterprise is trying to figure out how to save the planet without getting the people off the planet. Yeah. And I'm not yeah, sure why yeah. exactly, because apparently there is something as big and bad as what happened on this planet coming to another planet on the Federation. And and somehow going to visit the sea planet, they learn about tectonic plates, and that tells them how to save the people of the other planet. In the meantime, we're not getting them off the planet for anything, right. apparently. Right, right. Okay. No, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, for, for all the uh, people saving, they have to do in yeah. the future. Yeah. Um, but don't it, take them anywhere. They don't yeah, like to go right. places. Right. right. Well, I mean, that, that might be very difficult. And and for a guy like Scotty, and now you've got all these uh, water-breathing creatures, um, you know, I mean, what's Scotty going to do? Is he going to build a tank in the Enterprise and beam them up with water and then fly around? That'll never happen. Well, I didn't mean those people. No, <laughs> the, the people, the Argon. Uh, the Arquans. original Arg- yeah, yeah. They're going to be fine. No, I'm yeah. talking about the planet that they're trying to save. They're like, oh, no, there's another planet that's going to have the same kind of thing that you guys have here. Just beam them out of there. So yeah. they're still air breathers at that point. Right. This right. is not that difficult. Although apparently it's not that difficult to bring a water breather up. Just put a, you know, put a tub of water on their head. I mean, it's kind of interesting, actually. <laughs> yeah, Spock, there, it was, it, there was a weird moment where I was like, 
Spock seems to be having the same problem that Kirk has with what defines Spock, right? Because Spock's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm in an aquarium. I'd be useless to the Enterprise. Well, and then later we find out, well, we have these water suits that you could wear around. But yeah, no, apparently not. That, that yeah. wouldn't be a thing. But also, Spock is a science officer. So really, all you need to do is like treat some of his machinery mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, well, something that would keep it from being ruined by being submerged in water. So it's just not leaking all over it. Yeah. Right. And he's still able to do that. I'm, I was I was a tiny bit. I mean, it just reminded me a little bit of the, okay, what is Spock? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Discussions that we've had before. Is Spock in a computer still Spock? Kirk would say no. Mm-hmm. You know, and then is Spock in a 50 foot tall Spock still Spock? Kirk would say no. Definitely says no. And right. this time, you know, what is Spock in water? Well, Spock <laughs> says he's not Spock at that point. <laughs> or at least there's no use for there's no use for Spock in water. You need you need dry land Spock. You put them right. together anyway. Right. No, that, that's a really good point. Um, and, and by the way, speaking of the water planet and, and we get that new aqua shuttle. And I just want to say now, Ken, that I feel really cheated that um, that Aqua Shuttle, the little boat they had, um, it's a shame that Star Trek, the animated series, did not run longer and gain more popularity than it did because under different circumstances, this would have been like G.I. Joe and we would have gotten the Aqua Shuttle playset. Mm-hmm. We would have gotten the motorboat playset. We would have gotten the hangar bay action playset where you could put all of those things. And I'm I'm kind of bummed now that that stuff did not happen. Yeah, because um, you don't have enough Star Trek toys. I don't, not nearly <laughs> enough. <laughs> I would need far, far more. They need to make more, dang it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, did you notice that quick little line, uh, kind of throwaway, McCoy says that he's surprised to see that Spock and Kirk have secondary transparent eyelids. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know from Operation Annihilate that Spock already had that. Yeah, I was wondering did the did mm-hmm. the uh, did the Aquans actually like take off his other secondary <laughs> put on <eyelids>? new ones, <laughs> or did they just be like, oh, well, he's already got these? Oh, okay, well, we, yeah, we'll, we'll save those then. We we'll, we'll, we might need those later, so keep right. those because there's no point in this guy having three sets of eyelids. That would just be stupid. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, our crew are uh, fully clothed while swimming around. They even keep the boots on. Seems like it would all get very heavy. Yeah. Uh, but at least we learned before that their uniforms are made out of algae, so they should be right at home. Is it going to start growing? <laughs> it might. Because they're just bigger and now. bigger uniforms. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, and also, you know, it was kind of tricky predicting seismic activity. Not in the future. Well, apparently not. They were like, yeah, four hours. You're going to have a giant yep. earthquake. Oh, now something. it's going to be two hours. Now it's just <laughs> under two hours. Okay, right. stand back, everybody. you got 30 seconds. 30 seconds to earthquake. Please stand by. Yeah, that would be a nice technology to have, but uh, we, we don't have that now. I don't know if we ever will, but I'll, I'll hang in there for it kind of. Oh, my. Be- you are so weird to me sometimes. Why? Well, Why? you know, we're talking about a show with spaceships and teleporters mm-hmm. and, and neat little sort of force field belts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all that you'll take, but you're like, I don't know if we're going to be able to predict earthquakes. <laughs> well, I mean, we've got we, all we this stuff for earthquakes sure. right now. I mean, we've got all that stuff. It's just a matter of figuring it out, right? Well, we, we've got earthquakes. Right. But we don't have a way of predicting the future. That, we, that's we, kind of the problem. Well, not predicting the future, but I mean, it's not, I mean, this is not like, you know, angels aren't coming down and shaking the earth. I mean, this is happening <laughs> with right. physical stuff that we have here. It seems to me that we run, at, you know, at least the same chance of one day. And I understand I'm saying one day. I'm not saying tomorrow. Mm-hmm. One day figuring out when earthquakes are going to happen as we do teleportation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 it would be a helpful technology. To it have. would be a helpful technology it, it would to have. Be, yeah. I, on that, we agree. <laughs> well, let's talk about the big thing here. To me, um, 
Well, I, I thought about two things. I, I did think about the opening of Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, just because, hey, we're going to go to a water planet, and uh, instead of just sending our guys down with an aqua shuttle, we'll park the whole Enterprise underwater. But that's neither here nor there, because we don't break the timeline like I'm that. I'm sorry, Star Trek Into Darkness. <clears throat> yeah, into... We'll, we'll, we'll get to it I... much, much later. What? Yeah, okay. don't worry about it. All right. But here's the thing that I really thought about. I thought about Planet of the Apes so, so much while yeah. watching this episode. Yeah. Planet, and, and primarily the original movie, uh, just because that movie, uh, screenplay by Rod Serling, by the way, mm-hmm. um, was able to say so much in that science fiction story. It was able to tackle everything. They were able to talk about religion and politics and slavery and the environment and all these things together. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I thought, well, here's Margaret Armand basically doing a take on that. Planet of the Apes, of course, was wildly popular. It came out in 1969, I believe, 60 or 69. I want to say it was but, 68, but okay. Okay, but then you also had – oh, you're right, 68, yeah. Um, but then you also had the cartoon series. You also had the sequel. So by this time, early 70s, Planet of the Apes was very much part of the the popular culture. Um, I love the idea that the Aquans were air breathers who now became something else, and they forgot who they were. So just like the apes had evolved and used to be uh, a different species of ape and used to coexist with man, and that sort of changed their whole perspective. They used their technology, but then they feared its power and uh, what it revealed about them. So also a parallel to Planet of the Apes. The other air breathers turn to savagery when their planet was changing. Their ancient texts are hidden away. They have ancient ruins. You know, all of this stuff mm-hmm. really made me think that Margaret Armin had been watching Planet of the Apes. What's interesting is, and I guess these would have been written around the same time as the other, it, it actually reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of Battle uh, for the Planet of the Apes as well. I'm, oh, I'm, sure. I'm yeah. huge into the Planet of the Apes movies, but uh, mm-hmm. Battle for the Planet of the Apes was the one where you had the kids. Yeah, where you had the youngsters sort of sitting down and fighting the you know military industrial ape complex, <laughs> right, you know, right. and saying, "Hey, we don't have to think this way. We don't have to be this way." Which uh, certainly you get off the young Aquans later. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought that was just really, really cool. I was actually a little bit bothered by the by the. There's a tiny bit of ageism in this, actually, <laughs> um, and maybe it's because I'm in my mid forties. At this mm-hmm. point, as we record this, I'm in my early to mid 40s and I'm kind of getting bothered by the whole, you know, age thing. I was offended a tiny bit, honestly, that the young Aquans were going to rebuild the cities of the surface dwellers, uh, but the old people can't cope. And they even freely admit that they cannot cope. Right. Um, right now, right. I don't I don't know how how old Miss um, Armin was when she was writing this. But I mean, Roddenberry at this point was in his mid 40s. Gene Roddenberry, yeah. excuse me, was yeah. in his mid-40s at this point uh, when the cartoons were written. Not an old guy. I mean, mm-hmm. not a young guy, but not an old guy mm-hmm. at this point, right? And the idea that the future belongs exclusively to the young, it just kind of, it kind of annoyed me. <laughs> but again, it, yeah, that's exactly where I am right now. This whole, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like six inches from get off my lawn. You know, and I'm trying really hard to be like the guy who's like, hey, maybe those kids have a good idea on my lawn. (laughs) I was a little I was a little bothered by the age uh, by the age aspect of that. Well, it's funny. Domar says that the Aquans couldn't bear the thought of changing. Yep. 
The old you know, ones. The, the old, old ones. The old right. ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I, I'll give him credit. I think he did a pretty good job of it so far. You know, he was able to finally accept the idea. Once he's beamed up to the Enterprise, that's sort of the magic cure-all for everybody. You beam them up to the Enterprise and go, look, we can do all this other stuff because we apply our scientific knowledge and, you know, we don't have to live stuck the way that you live. We decided to do something different. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. I also thought this could be bad news for the Aquans who live underwater because if they're leaving only the old ones behind, I don't know much about Aquan reproduction, uh, but this could be bad that the uh, the whole underwater version of the Aquans will just die out and you only have the young ones up on land being able to reproduce and create new Aquans who will no longer be Aquans. They will be air-breathing, land-dwelling are argons <laughs> well are argonauts they did not say though that all of the young aquans were going they just mm. said none of the old ones were it would only be uh, young right aquans going. i mean yeah, so not, not you know i mean not not every kid leaves the farm you know yeah, yeah. i mean i mean to put it in, in its most you know basic terms i mean some some people never leave their hometown and and that's mm-hmm. true of that's true of urban areas and that's true of 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 uh, you know far off country villages i mean some people don't go off to see the big city or some people don't go off to explore. And so yeah. my assumption is not that it's only the old Aquans that are left. It's right, just right. none of the old Aquans are going above. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I did. I agree with you that I thought it was interesting that he and at least many or all of the old Aquans would get to a place that they wouldn't be able to change. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's just assumed. Here's Domar speaking for all of the old Aquans that none of them would be able to accept a change. And I just kept thinking, well, uh, apply that to your favorite political topic for fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, uh, well, yeah, because I always had this thought in my mind as well. And and you know, we talked about this a very little bit um, when we talked about uh, let this be our last battlefield. You know, you and I grew up in the South. And fortunately, we grew up in a time that was right after the major civil rights upheaval. But then I thought, okay, here are all these people. I I grew up in Alabama. George Wallace was governor during that nonsense, and he was governor again in the 80s. And I kept thinking, well, here's somebody who – do I accept that they have fundamentally changed their outlook and their beliefs – Or is this political expediency to get the job back, you know, Mm -hmm. because I I don't know. You never truly know what is in somebody's mind as they are, you know, running for office or doing something like that. But I I kept thinking, well, is he at a certain age able to actually change his point of view and his beliefs in order to lead and govern effectively and equally and fairly? That's kind of the most important thing there. Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak to uh, Mr. Wallace in particular, but, mm-hmm. you know, I would I would hope that people can always change. I mean, do they? Not necessarily. And, mm-hmm. and certainly, I, I would guess as you get older, there may be more reason to not, or there may be more reason to not want to. Mm-hmm. But I know plenty of people who have. I mean, I, I, I know people whose parents were, I would say, homophobic. Mm-hmm. Or 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 maybe you know well yeah I'd go with homophobic mm-hmm. you know until it turned out that their kid was a homosexual and right then, and then right. all of a sudden it turns out that is not the worst thing in the world and and I mean that's a very personal thing I mean where suddenly you're 
you're sort of forced to confront something about yourself and either you're going to change or you're going to lose contact with your child, no matter how old they are. I mean, they're certainly not child age at that point. But um, Right, right. I mean, I, I think we do have the capacity to change. The question is what's going to make that happen. And who knows? Yeah. Maybe maybe all the young Aquans going up would, would force some of the older Aquans to think, you know, the surface might not be the worst thing in the world. I would hope so. Yeah. Because I, I think the young Aquans could uh, benefit from the presence of the old Aquans in, in some way. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, should we go ahead to the uh, the lessons of the episode? Oh, well, I uh, we we said we were going to get to the ordainments. I got I got to say really quickly. Yeah. I'm 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 bothered by the joke about writing new ordainments at the end. Yeah. So yeah. so the ordainments have kept people from, you know, learning and exploring and and doing anything new from knowing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, than they know, you know, than what's been passed down by the written law. And if you think that doesn't have real world implications, I, I would love to tell you a story if I could, John. <laughs> Go right ahead. Um, and, and people who listen to another podcast that I've done may have heard this story. But when I was 11 or 12 years old, I wrote a very basic, basic computer program. Like, like in the basic computer language, I wrote this very basic program. And it had to do with money. And And my thinking was, if I had money in a bank account, I didn't need to have physical money. All I needed was proof that I had the money, that I had that value someplace, right? So I should then be able to buy things without cash, simply by moving the value that I had acquired from one account to somebody else's account. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not that weird an idea. It's called a debit card. But I was 12, (laughs) and I didn't have a debit card, and I had no knowledge of such things. And it just seemed like an idea that, you know, made sense. So I started working on this program for it. I finished this program for it. I showed it to the most technically advanced person I knew, who was my dad, mm-hmm. who immediately started telling me to do nothing that would bring about the cashless society. Because apparently <laughs> this was based on his reading of Revelations. Literally. Hmm. This was his reading of Revelations. Now, would I have been some amazing computer or finance whiz kid had he not done that? Would I have been rich? Would we all be saying my name with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs? No. <laughs> we would not. But... I do know that my movement in that direction was was blocked immediately. I had no interest in even looking into that stuff anymore because one person that I respected had this very fundamentalist reading of what you could call the ordainments, Hmm. if you want to. Mm-hmm. And while I get that the young Aquan was kind of joking about the ordainments, mm-hmm. um, it, this might be a good time for the Aquans to learn the phrase, oh, too soon? <laughs> because because the ordainments have, you know, in just the last 10 minutes caused a tremendous amount of trouble. And honestly, it was almost like uh, it was almost like Kurt calling up and saying, I have a little surprise for Scotty at the end of Bread and Circuses. It feels like a lot of the lessons of this episode were undone. Yeah. Uh, in just the last minute of, oh, don't worry, we're going to we're going to make laws that we're going to pay attention to this time. Well, no, the laws that you were paying attention to last time nearly got, you know. Us killed <laughs> right. and really didn't serve you that well. Yeah, yeah. go ahead and make your little joke. It just kind of it, it 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 rubbed me seriously the wrong way again. Maybe because of personal stuff. This this episode brought up a lot of personal stuff for me, John. I'm sorry to hear that, Ken. That's nah, sorry. You could be okay. Um, no, I, I thought the same thing. I kept hoping that they would just start over the brand new Constitution because <laughs> they they really needed to. Maybe Kurt <laughs> needed to do the dramatic reading of the U.S. Constitution in this episode. Um, yeah, I, I worried about that too. Very often, creating new laws 
is not the answer, but rather just striking the old laws that don't make any sense is the better idea. Um, when you apply all of this to there, it, it's two things going on here. For, first of all, it's the, the, the sort of over-bureaucratizing of their society. Instead of just saying it's a good idea that we talk to each other, actually making that into a law, that's a very bad idea. And I kind of hope for a uh, I, I don't know. Had this been a, uh, a, a filmed episode rather than an animated episode, there might have been another scene after that of Kirk saying, no, you don't need a law for that. Just be nice to each other. Talk to each other. That's all you need to do. Um, <laughs> but the other interesting thing here to me is that, yeah, here we are back to this blind faith thing that we've tackled many times in Star Trek about the ancient texts not being a reliable way to address current problems. That that was uh, a lesson line from this spoken by one of the Aquans. Ordainments are useless in times of turbulence. Only knowledge will help us. And he's right. You know, um, they can respect and honor the ancient scrolls as much as they want to. But it doesn't actually apply to the here and now of solving their problem. Um, to me, this episode kind of fits in with the other subversive messages we've already seen in the animated series. You know, we already we already got to meet the devil. Right. And we explained to our audience of eight-year-olds right. that he isn't a mystical <laughs> demon to be feared. <laughs> But rather, he's a being to be understood. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I kind of, I would even take this episode because it is very uh, kind of heavy handed and glaringly obvious. So I would put it in the category of let that be your last battlefield to say that it is that obvious, but it's still provocative and it's still smart. And in fact, it's so smart that it probably went right over the heads of a lot of eight to 10 year olds. But I'm really glad we get to talk about it as adults. It may have gone right over the head of a lot of eight to 10 year olds, but at the same time, it has to have lodged in there. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I mean, there, there's lots of stuff uh, like all the sharing stuff that you get on Sesame Street. We're not getting a gigantic, you know, a dose of, you know, well, here's why it's important to share and all that stuff on Sesame Street. Right. We're mm -hmm. just sharing. Because it's like a nice thing to do and it makes people feel good. And then, you know, theoretically, we grow up thinking, yeah, sharing's not the worst thing in the world, I guess. Although, you know, that does tend to be beaten out of us quite a bit. Right, right. I, I do have to say one other, one other, um, one other really quickly uh, message that I picked up on this. Fear of the unknown is nuts. The, yes. the sea monkeys yes. have lived in fear and expectation of air breathers coming for them. And they, they, they haven't even seen air breathers in generation after generation after generation. But the second uh, Spock and Kirk show up, they're like, oh, it's the air breather spies. We've been expecting you. And they never mm -hmm. say, yeah, you guys actually don't have air breathers anymore. <laughs> right, right. There are no air breathers on, well, your, again, on they, your planet. They were relying on their ancient texts. Yeah. And that, that was a, an unreliable source of information. And Spock pretty much calls it out. Uh, about the the prejudice thing there, you know, the, uh, some people don't like others based on how they look. Uh, they find Kirk and Spock grotesque and ugly, and uh, Spock says many people fear beings different from themselves. So I, I thought that was uh, obviously, you know, Spock calls that out as a message of the interpersonal relationship, but then kind of the on the bigger level, the the macro level of this whole society fearing what is outside of them. 
tight little ensign. There's more mission log ahead. Right after this. game ever, the Star Trek Phaser Battle, the game that fires back. Just power on. It's an exact replica of the Star Trek telescreen. Watch out, here comes the Klingon. Press the trigger on the phaser launcher. Here's a phaser fire. The Klingon ship appears throughout the galaxy. You can hear the phasers launch. The Klingon fires back. Is this a Star Trek phaser battle? Sure is, Dad. Wanna try it? Okay. Turn it up to Fleet Commander, Dad. That'll make it tough for you. Wow, this is fast. There's the alert. Press the Fire again. Check your score. Your hit is recorded on an LED readout screen. Every time you miss, the Star Trek phaser battle fires back. You've got to raise your shields to stop them, and you've only got three chances Phaser Battle, the game that fights back. It's just as tough for Dad as it is for you. New for Miko. And now, back to Mission Log. Cartoon number two. The Slaver Weapon. Act one. Spock, Uhura, and Sulu are in a shuttle on their way to Starbase 25 to drop off a Slaver stasis box. What's a slaver? Well, slavers were a highly advanced race that once ruled the galaxy. They kept everyone else enslaved until one race revolted. All intelligent life was destroyed in the battle that ensued, and intelligent life had to evolve all over again, according to Mr. Spock. Now, what's a stasis box? Well, it's a box that keeps things in stasis. Whatever state they're in when they're put in the box... That's the way they stay for years, hundreds of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. Think of it like Tupperware, but better. Stasis boxes are all that's left of the slaver technology. Well, that and the stuff found inside the stasis boxes. Sometimes the stuff inside is great, like an anti-gravity belt. Sometimes the stuff inside is not so great, like a grenade with the pin pulled. Think let's make a deal, but more deadly. Suddenly the stasis box in Spock's care is glowing, which is odd. They only do that when near another stasis box. Think fireflies, but better. Spock thinks it's unlikely that a slaver stasis box could have remained undiscovered in this well-traveled part of space. Still, this one is glowing, and they decide to see if they can find its counterpart. That takes them to a little airless, ice-bound world. Spock's readings indicate that the second stasis box should be right under them. But before they can dig for it, fish cats! No, I'm not cursing. It's the Kazinti, identified by John last week in the time trap as fish cats. They're mostly cat, actually. They've got weird submariner-like ears. Phasers drawn, the Kazinti stunned Spock, Uhura, and Sulu. Spock's a bit bummed that he was duped by the Kazenti. He knew there was probably no stasis box here, even though the stasis box he had indicated that there was. This may be a bigger problem than it seems, though. The Gazenti aren't supposed to have phasers. A past treaty with the Federation says so. That treaty was necessitated by four wars fought between humanity and the Gazin. Four wars the Gazin lost. These are really bad, bad guys. They eat people. And they appear to have broken their no-weapons treaty. 
Also, the three members of the Enterprise crew are caught in a police web, limiting their movements to a hexagon about eight feet by eight feet. If they can't kill its power, they can't do anything. In come the Gazenti, with one old bedraggled fishcat member. He is their reader of minds. Well, there's no way to guard against their mind probes for sure, but Spock has an idea. First of all, he's only worried about Sulu. The mind reader will ignore Spock and Uhura because they're seen as inferior beings, Spock being a vegetarian and Uhura being a woman. So Sulu, if you think the Kazinti mind reader is trying to read your mind, think of eating a raw vegetable. Seriously. And Uhura don't say anything or do anything. Kazinti females are dumb animals. If you act dumb, the Kazinti may forget that you're not a dumb animal, then you may be able to get the drop on them. Chuffed, Captain, addresses Sulu. He, Spock, and Uhura are prisoners aboard the privateer Trader's Claw, a stolen police vessel with absolutely no ties whatsoever to the Kazinti government. No, sir, we are out here on our own. If we get caught doing bad things, our government will have no knowledge of the prisoners we're taking, of the treaties we're breaking. Yes, yeah, secretly they're working for the Kazinti government, though giving the government plausible deniability. If they're caught... They were acting on their own. If, on the other hand, they find, say, a slaver weapon inside the stasis box, get ready for human fishcat war number five. Box open, the Kazinti find what may well be a picture of a slaver, first one of those ever found, fresh meat, because the stasis box locks in freshness, and a previously undiscovered weapon. What's the Kazinti word for bingo? Act two. The Kazinti are assessing the finds in the box. The picture is probably of a slaver, the meat is poisonous, and the weapon they will try out on the people from the Enterprise. It's a really stunning device. Toggle a toggle and it completely changes shape into a laser, uh, just like the ones they already have, and a personal jet that the Kazinti chuffed captain cannot control. He knocks into Uhura, who is freed from the police web, and starts running until she's hit with a phaser stun. The Kazinti continue their weapons test. Unbeknownst to them, this setting kills the power to the police web holding Sulu, Spock, and Uhura. The Kazinti haven't noticed, though, and the three Enterprise members make for the shuttle. The Kazinti do notice that. Sulu and Spock get away, though Uhura is caught. But Sulu and Spock have leverage. In escaping, Spock kicked the chuffed captain, a huge blow to the chuffed captain's honor, so he'll not be calling for help. Spock also took the slaver weapon so they have the biggest bargaining chip imaginable. And what's the deal with the slaver weapon anyway? Sulu surmises it must have been a weapon for a spy. If so, says Spock, it would probably have a self-destruct component built in. Just then, the traitor's claw calls Sulu with a message. Start bargaining, or things are going to get truly unpleasant for your female. Act 3. Chuffed Captain wants the weapon in exchange for Lieutenant Uhura. Also, he wants to fight Spock to the death. Spock thinks he would probably lose, though, and Sulu says no dice. He and Spock go back to testing the slaver weapon and find a truly horrific setting, one capable of destruction the likes of which the Federation has never seen. So they can't give this to the Gazenti? No. Maybe they should have run instead of talking about it. The force of the weapon blows back on them, knocks them cold. They awake back in the police web in the Gazenti ship. The Kazinti have the weapon, and they're trying to figure out how to blow stuff up the way Sulu and Spock did. They find yet another setting, one that lets the Kazinti talk with the weapon, and it talks back. Spock is amazed. A computer that small with such power? The Federation apparently has nothing like that. 
the Gazenti start quizzing the device, though it won't give up the information they want without certain code words, which the Gazenti don't know. What was your mission? I cannot tell you without the code words. How long were you inactive? I cannot tell you without the code words. How do we turn you into the most awesome destructive force we've ever seen? Oh, twist my handle. Really? No, not really. They don't know it, but the Gazenti have found the self-destruct. They take it outside and blow themselves up with it. Spock figures the slaver weapon figured it had been caught by the enemy and did what it was programmed to do. Destroy itself and its captors. Sulu's sorry to see the thing destroyed. It would have looked great in a museum, though Spock seems glad it's gone. It was too powerful, and other races would have tried for it. The Vulcan muses on how often the past can encroach on the present, which brings us to the end. Ken, the, the most difficult thing to grapple with here at the end of this episode is there's this fish cat everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not good eating, you know? I mean, no. the humans are, are much better uh, enemies. They, they don't eat their dead. Right, <laughs> that we know of. Well, yeah, yeah that's true. I don't know. Yeah. Although fried fish cat. I'm sorry, no, wait, that's fried catfish. My bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. See, there you go. There you are. Um, this episode was written by Larry Niven, and uh, it is well known that it was adapted from his short story, The Soft Weapon. And that was actually Gene Roddenberry's suggestion that he adapt that story for this episode. He's best known for the Ringworld series. Uh, Ringworld came out in 1970, and his TV credits included uh, Land of the Lost, which I've mentioned before, and The Outer Limits. He also uh, he also co-wrote uh, The Moat in God's Eye with Jerry Purnell, didn't he? Oh, I believe you are right, yes. I read that. Yes, I, yes. I've not read the Ringworld, uh, the Ringworld mm -hmm. books, but I, I have read uh, The Moat in God's Eye and The Gripping Hand, and I actually Ring found those fascinating. Cool. Now, yeah. I will say, um, you can certainly tell the episodes that are written by uh, a novelist. <laughs> yes. Versus yes. the episodes written by, you know, somebody who's just writing a TV script, because somebody right. who's writing a TV script will give you, like, you know, maybe 18 minutes of content yeah. for a 24-minute episode. And this one... He's got a he's got a universe going. I mean, yeah. he's actually he's yeah. actually told us and we know a lot, you know, for only having a few boxes with a few technological gadgets in them, we mm -hmm. know a lot about the slavers, including the fact that all intelligent life was destroyed and intelligent life had to re-evolve. They were not they were not like, you know, bombed back to the stone age. Right, right. They were bombed back to in the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there yeah. was nothing, and then eventually there got there was some stuff. Uh, yeah, look in the ordainments if you if you don't if that was too short for you to, to know what <laughs> right. I'm talking about. Right, right. Um, I found it very interesting that uh, th this is an amazing technology slash mm -hmm. weapon that is totally under control of Starfleet, and we are stealing technology from it, like well, gravity fields, as described by Spock. So well, that's kind of cool. You mean the stasis boxes? Well, yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah. we get the stasis box, yeah. and, and then there's stuff in it, and Starfleet's like, well, all right, we can use this. Let's, yeah. let's get this over to the, the 23rd century equivalents of uh, Area 51 right. and start reverse engineering that alien technology, and that's how we get cool things. Now, what's weird is Spock actually says, so the stasis boxes are so advanced and the stuff inside them so advanced that very few people are actually allowed to handle them. Yeah. So we're yeah. going to go to Starbase 25. Right. So is Starbase 25 the only place they can do that and those few people are there? Or do you just go to the nearest stasis box drop-off point? 
I was hoping they'd just go to the drop-off point. The nearest yeah. one? Really? Yeah, because if they're all at uh, Starbase 25, then yeah. all the other uh, enemies of Starfleet have to do is uh, show up at Starbase 25. It is It is memory alpha all over again. I know. Yeah. I know. That, that would just not, be a mess. Not be good. <laughs> not be good at all. Um, it, it was cool to see Spock, Uhura, and Sulu on their own. Yeah. I thought that was kind of neat. It was something we would have never gotten on the original series. Well, um, no. Although, you know, it, it reminded me of uh, In the Darkness. Sorry. <laughs> um, here's the thing. You would not have gotten that. But I will say uh, Spock has does seem to have learned a lot about command since the Galileo seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think he needs to cut himself a tiny bit of slack, though. Yeah. He says, oh, I should have known there wasn't another stasis box out here because people come here. This place is like Niagara Falls. I mean, nobody comes near here without coming here, right? <laughs> right, right. Because apparently there's some really neat thing to see in the sky or something. So people have been all over this place, and yet they never found the stasis box. I, I should have known. But, but I mean, logically, I mean, there was, in fact, another stasis box there. I mean, what he should have anticipated, I guess, maybe was that the stasis box might be there as a trap. But right. he needs he needs to cut himself a little bit of slack because, you know— I mean, it's it's doing the stasis box thing when there's another stasis box around. Yeah. And who knows? Put those two together, you might get a bunch of little baby stasis boxes. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, 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 be... I might be misunderstanding how the stasis box works, actually. You might. You might. Um, how about that line, uh, Kazinti females are dumb animals. Yeah. Uh, Spock apologizes for this, and Uhura takes offense at the idea but but then spock sort of explains the the cultural context if you will so it was one of the first uh, maybe one of the the first references here where there's some sort of like self-awareness of sexism yes very much so actually i mean if you don't mind me skipping back and forth a little bit between the we're just talking about it and we're actually talking about it part yeah yeah. um, i've actually got my notes three cheers for the anti-sexism message um spock tells uhura to play dumb because kazanti females are dumb as you say um it bothered me that uh, uhura was offended but i get you have to explain to eight-year-olds why she's going to play dumb because certainly Mm -hmm. you know this is a time where uhura might reasonably stand up and say i am woman hear me roar right? right But Spock's like, hey, look, I know you're smart. You don't have to tell me, all right? I actually value you know, everything you have to offer. But they don't. And so playing dumb would actually be the smartest thing you can do. Because if, if they're not even going to give you a second thought, then you can give as much thought as you want to to the best way to get out of here, and you can help get the drop on them, right? This to me is anti-sexism and anti-a lot of other isms, too. Um, you're basically <laughs> saying that operating on preconceived notions about people just because of you know, gender, race, creed, religion, you name it, um, could be a huge mistake. And yeah. and thankfully, it's a mistake in this episode that the Enterprise is not making um, or that the, you know, the people that we know and like aren't making, but the uh, but the Kazanti certainly are in a big way, right. including right. people who don't eat meat. I, I don't even <laughs> I don't even want to talk to you. You, you, you eat vegetables. <sighs> I, I'm sorry, Ken, I tuned out of what you were saying. I was imagining eating a raw vegetable. Uh while you're doing that <laughs> so. with your flat teeth uh. <laughs> right um I, and i the other thing that i so yes uh, three cheers for that moment of anti-sexism uh messaging going on um and, and i thought that we were back to some of the other discussions we had in the original series you know here's a technology that is so powerful that people are fighting for it mm-hmm. um 
and it contains the the box contains potentially weapons of technology so powerful that we have to fight each other to keep each other from getting it or keep it from falling into the wrong hands. Um, However, this is the 23rd century. This is Star Trek. So we already have some pretty powerful technology ourselves. And we basically want the people who we fight to be at the same level of development, (laughs) you know? So uh, we will fight other people in spaceships, but we don't want those other people who are also in spaceships that can also warp away, that also have phasers and, and that kind of weapon to get the next best weapon. Hmm. We, you know, we want to make sure that that stays. So at least we want to kind of even the playing field. So uh, there is something strange there about kind of the assumption that we will fight, the assumption that these weapons will be used. I mean, the Kazenti, uh, they're a little, uh, they're a little dangerous. We've, we've established that. Um, yeah, but then Spock says that somebody else would have come after it too. I, I can't remember who he named. I know he named the Klingons. I can't remember which other races he named. But he was yeah, like, yeah, because. Yeah. Because Sulu, like the, Sulu the, does his best, like Indiana Jones, and says, eh, that belongs in a museum. And, I know, right, and, right. And Spock's like, yeah, no, that wouldn't have made it to a museum because everybody would have been after it. Yeah. Maybe you These don't weapons, advertise. Yeah, exactly. You don't advertise. These weapons are so bad right. that only we should have them. Or Well, no, that nobody should. I, I got the sense. Yeah. See, that's interesting that you're saying that. I got the sense in the end that Spock was glad that it was gone because it was just, it was a Pandora's box times, you know, right. eight. Or 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 nine even. I mean, it was, oh, it was so dangerous that it shouldn't be out there anywhere. Yeah. Of course, they didn't know what was in the box. I mean, they weren't going to open the box. They were going to drop it off at Starbase Twenty Five and let them deal with it. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is sort of an interesting thing for Spock to do. But that goes back to his whole org chart thing. I mean, if, yeah, if, right. if he's going to come to a point of thinking maybe there's something so dangerous in here that nobody should have it. Then would Spock just say, you know, so I'm going to dispose of it? Or would Spock just look at the box and go, man, I am so glad I don't know what's in there. Yeah, right, right, right. I don't even have to think about it. I'm just going to drop this off and then go back to Niagara Falls or whatever that place was called. Well, I I guess the thing that I was grappling with is that it's still a weapon. Whether it's more powerful than the weapon that Spock has right now, a phaser, it's still a weapon. And Starfleet has all kinds of weapons. So, you know, if you wanted to extrapolate this to modern arguments about gun control and that kind of thing, you know, they say in this episode, the weapon is haunted by its previous owners. You know, we we assign these values to weapons because of their intended uses when, when actually any weapon in the wrong hands has the ability to kill. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the slaver weapon is a bad thing, and it just tore out a chunk of that planet and took a whole lot of fish cats with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Spock, Sulu, and Uhura could have done just as much damage with a phaser on overload. They they could have also gone in there and killed a bunch of fish cats with their phasers. They didn't because they are moral people abiding by a certain code. Well, hold on a minute though, because it, mm-hmm. it feels to me like you're you're like sort of conflating two or three things. I mean, first I, I, of all, I very much am. <laughs> the, okay, the fact that that, that that you know this thing took out a chunk of the planet. I mean, to say it that way for people who haven't watched the cartoon, and I know there are some people who are not watching the cartoon but still listening to the podcast, which is for which shame. is kind of kind of interesting to me. For shame, well, they just hate the cartoon that much, <laughs> right. but they like us, so you know, more power to them. I wouldn't Thank say you. for shame. I would say, well done, <laughs> sir or madam, as the case may be. Please let us continue. I mean, all that was all all that blew up the fish cats was the um i'm sorry the kazinti was 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 the self-destruct mechanism that was meant to protect the weapon i mean the true weapon was the thing and i didn't really illustrate it very well in the description but 
Sulu shoots off to the horizon and produces a mushroom cloud. Right. And right. the blowback from the weapon that I said hit them is basically the same thing that you see in all of those films of mushroom clouds from atomic weapons in the 1950s and 60s, where all of a sudden the, you know, like this shock wave comes and like and like blows uh, uh, Sulu and Spock over mm-hmm. to the point that it knocks them out. Here's the thing, though. We didn't know any of that at the beginning of the episode. Had they not been trapped by the Kazinti and had the Kazinti not opened the box, all they were doing was running UPS or all they were doing was running FedEx. I mean, they yeah, were going yeah. from point A to point B with it. So, I mean, for you're raising a sort of a bigger question about about the Federation, I think. Like, why do they get whatever's in this box as opposed to somebody else? Should there not be some, you know, gigantic organization that, you know, shares all of this information? But there is, and it's called the Federation. I mean, the Kazinti are, 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 are still hell-bent despite the treaty, and this also plays a little bit weird with the timeline because the last war was 200 years ago, which I think is about the time we were first going to space in Star Trek <laughs> or first, you know, uh, getting the warp right. drive. And yet that was the fourth war between humans and Kazenti. Yeah. Maybe Spock's right. Maybe cats really are just the worst thing ever. Maybe <laughs> we're are. fighting that they battle. Are. We might be fighting the third battle right now. It's terrible. All that aside, forgive me. I don't think Spock was sailing in saying, okay, well, we have this weapon and we're the only ones that are allowed to have this weapon and nobody else can, so we have to protect it. I mean, again, Spock had no idea what was in the box. It's yeah. weird to me that Spock didn't want to know what was in the box because it was so dangerous, but... He's, you know, while he is second in command on the Enterprise, he's low man on the totem pole as far as the Federation is concerned. So, I mean, it's yeah. really not up to him to find out. Well, it goes uh, back to that. You, know, you, you made one Indiana Jones reference, and now mm-hmm. it just goes back to the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's going to be in a box in a warehouse with a lot of other boxes. There you go. Nobody can get to it. Let's hope yeah. nothing happens to that. There was one other, one other message really quickly, and again, it's sort of an uh, anti-Kazenti mm-hmm. thing. Uh, <laughs> honor, honor before all else is dopey. Yeah, the, the Kazinti yeah. chuffed captain was beaten by an herb, herb, herbivorous. Yes, <laughs> I'm saying you're on plant yeah. eating pacifist. And then the worst part of the whole thing was he was left alive. Yeah, uh, pride keeps the chuffed captain from calling for help. Had yeah. he gone ahead and called for help, we'd all be speaking um, Kazinti. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? If he had just gone ahead and like you know buried his pride and said, "Yeah, you know, I hate that this happened. I don't want to talk about it, but I just need I need you to come here and help me kill these three people because that's mm-hmm. it. It's three people standing between us and total galactic domination." But then I would have to explain that that guy hit me. <laughs> so never mind. Uh, right. uh, pride, uh, pride cometh before the fall. Actually, um, honor before all else is dopey. And the Kazinti learned that the hard way this week. I agree. I I would also say that there's something kind of interesting here about past actions having consequence in the future. Uh, At least the slavers had thought through some logic on this with their weapon. You know, that that it was intelligent enough to know when it was in the wrong hands. Um, but, But yes, you know, we can keep building weapons, but we cannot guarantee that we will always have control over them. Yeah. So apply that to the arms race or however you'd like to apply it. Um, but I, I think that is uh, just as pertinent a message now as it, as it was then and will continue to be. So tell me this, boys and girls, what would you like to apply that message to? There are lots of ways to let us know. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. Uh, you can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. 
You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next week, Ken, we wrap up Season 1 of the animated series with Eye of the Beholder and the Jihad. Music for Mission Log provided by Big Gorgon Trio. Find their self-titled album on iTunes. Additional music provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Look for John and Ken Mission Log Yo-Yos and specially marked boxes of Star Trek. The Amber Grease Cereal. It's Amber Greasy. And transmission. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.